Okay, we're in our continuing study of the Gospel of John. However, this morning we are in the Passion Week and we're in the, the, the night of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at tonight's uh, activities through the personalities that are involved. So we're going to look at four different personalities or four different groups that are involved in this amazingly moment in history this drama that is unfolding that brings about the greatest event in human history is the, the death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became flesh to represent us before God. And so the four, the four groups, the four people we're going to be looking at is, first of all, that's involved in this night of this drama that's unfolding in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where the location is. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just finished his high priestly prayer in chapter 17 of John. Um, and, well, he's finished that, and then he went in over to the Garden of Gethsemane after he prayed that prayer, probably on the portico of the, the temple when he prayed that prayer. And then they crossed over to the, the, the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went into this prayerful time with the Father where he was agonizing over becoming sin. For us and paying the penalty for our sin and so here you have the main the main personality in our drama is jesus christ i mean jesus christ is the perfect lamb of god he is the son of god he is god in the flesh and he has gone to the father in prayer so he is prayerfully prepared for what this night and the next day is going to take him in his humanity in his deity, he is always prepared because he is the purpose of God, the, wor the word of God, the, the, the will of God is, is agreed upon throughout the, the trinity of God. And in his humanity, he has the weakness of the flesh that he had to pray to the Father to be able to endure all that was going to come against him as being the son, the son of man, the Son of God, and yet being separated from the Father in an eternal separation on the cross. And so the preparation for that that agony of being separated from God to God and all that he was going to endure on the cross as becoming sin, he had to go to the Father in prayer to prepare that. So you have Jesus Christ who is now prepared prayerfully for this night and the coming day to come. Then you have Judas Iscariot who is the disciple that was a disciple of Jesus Christ but in reality is a disciple or servant of Satan. Uh, Judas, we're going to look at his, uh, his activities and his thoughts as he goes through this time. Uh, he is an unbeliever. He is dark in his, in his sins. He's not a believer. He is an unbeliever. He, has, he is dead in his trespass of sin. He is being used of Satan to accomplish Satan's means and, and, and used of God to accomplish what was preordained and, and prophesied about uh, the one that would betray Christ. But he's doing so somewhat in ignorance of all that is involved in that. And then you have the other disciples, mainly we're going to deal with Peter, who are truly born again, who are the true disciples of Christ, but they are unprepared because they didn't pray. They didn't, they're not powerful. They don't have the power to overcome temptation. So they're unprepared and un knowing or unin, uninformed about what is happening and how they should proceed, how they should act. And so we're going to look at uh, Peter especially and, and the disciples. And then we're going to look at the Jewish leaders, especially Caiaphas, and their interaction in this drama as it unfolds on this night of the betrayal, arrest, and trial of Jesus Christ. So we're going to begin in Matthew, even though we're studying uh, the Gospel of John. We're going to begin in Matthew because Matthew records uh, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and then immediately after that this uh, portrayal uh, by Judas. So if, if you want to start in verse 45 of Matthew 26, this is when he has come to the disciples after he's finished his prayer time in the garden. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays us is at hand. 
Now this is probably at the entrance to the Garden of Gethsemane because if you remember when Jesus went into the garden, he left the majority of the disciples at the, at the front of the, at the gate or at the front of the garden and then he went on into the garden with Peter, James, and John and then he went on a little bit further away from them to pray. And so he is coming out and he is, getting, he is meeting with the other disciples. He brought Peter, James, and John with him to the front of the, the garden and now he says, it is time for me to be betrayed. And so there they are. And then across the Kidron Valley, across there, you see this mob of, of Roman soldiers that are at the bequest of the, the high priest. They are under the command of the high priest. You see this band of people coming with torches into across the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane to meet and to find Jesus. Now, we know from last week we looked at, Judas was aware that this is the place where Jesus often frequented with his disciples as a place of communication, a place of prayer, a place of, of teaching them. And so Judas knew where Jesus would be. And so he's bringing this cohort of uh, officials from the Jewish uh, high priest office and for, uh, Roman soldiers. In verse 47, it says, And while he was still speaking... He just got them to the front of the garden, and while he's still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave, him, gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do, you do what you have come for. Then they came and took, laid hands on Judas, uh, Jesus and seized him. So here is the Judas kiss. It is the betrayer's kiss of familiarity, of friendship, but it is the sign to the people that he has brought with him to seize Jesus, the one he is betraying. Now Judas is a disciple. If you remember back in John chapter 6 when Jesus is going through that tremendous account of him being the bread of life, and when he gets to the end of that, many of the Followers that were following Jesus went away because of the hard teaching. And uh, Jesus says to Peter, do you want to go away also? And Peter answered him in verse 68 of chapter 6 of John, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So here Jesus calls Judas a devil, and he, the word devil there is diabolos, which means accuser, slanderer, one that joins in with those that are accusing and slandering Jesus Christ. That's what the devil does. He is an accuser, a slanderer of the, of the things, of the people of God. Now, if you remember when uh, Jesus is speaking to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, and he had told him that he has the keys of the kingdom and he's going to build his church. And then he talks about he is going to die. And Peter says, Lord, we're not going to allow that to happen. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. The word Satan there is not Diabolos, but it's Satanus. The name of Satan, Satanus. And it means one who is in opposition. And so Peter was being in opposition to the will of God in not wanting Jesus to die on the cross, which is why he came. But he was not called a Diabolos like he calls Judas because Judas is joined with Satan. He is a part of Satan's kingdom. He is not a part of God's kingdom. He is not born again. He is an unbeliever. Okay, so here he is. He is going to be used of Satan to be the one to betray Jesus Christ. Any questions about Judas? All right, he comes and he betrays Jesus Christ. And so here we have this account of what happens then. And it says in verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, here we have the reaction of Peter. Peter is one of the disciples that are truly born again, who is unprepared for this, this moment. But Peter is done told Jesus that he's willing to die for him. He's willing to go to fight for him. He's willing to, to do whatever. And so his immediate reaction is when they're coming to get Jesus, he's going to fight. So he's got this bravado. He's got this, this desire to fight against it. And again, Peter is a born-again believer. But he is unprepared for the moment. And he is without understanding and knowledge. 
He doesn't know what he's doing. He's going to do something because that's the way Peter is. He's rash and he's bold and he's going to do something. So he strikes out and he cuts the ear off of Malchus, the, the, one of the soldiers there. And, and Jesus tells him, no, Peter. And so here you have Jesus' response to this arrest, this betrayal. He says, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's an amazing statement. She said, what are you doing, Peter? If I needed help, do you not think that the father would send me all the angels in heaven that I need to destroy all these people? If that was the whole point of me coming is to not to die on the cross, is to come and just take over the world, do you not think I have the power to do that with all the support of the angels and everything? So again, Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't understand. And then he says, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? And so Jesus is saying, this is the purpose of God. This is the will of God. Now, Peter does get it in Acts when he gets filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then he begins, he begins to preach. He understands now that this is the purpose of God, that this whole event was preordained by God. In, in Acts chapter 3, 18, um, it says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that the, his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So G, Peter is saying, this was spoken of in the prophets. That the, surfer, the suffering servant would come and would die for the sins of the people. And so now Peter has the understanding, he has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he recalls that this was what was prophesied in Scripture. But Peter didn't understand that at the moment. But now he understands that. Okay? And then in, 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 his, in, his, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he says... To Israel, in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. This is Peter speaking. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as yourselves know. Now, he, Peter, he reminds them of all of the, the works that Jesus did, all of the miracles that Jesus did, all of the things that Jesus said, and it was attested to. In other words, you have no reason not to believe Jesus when he said what he said. You have no reason not to believe that he is who he says he is. But this man who attested to everything that he said and did with miracles and signs and wonders, this man, in verse 23, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was predetermined and planned by the Godhead, by the Trinity of God in the eternal covenant before the world was ever formed. Before the foundation of the world, it was preordained for this night to happen just in the way it happened. And so Peter is recalling the time of the, this arrest and trial and, and crucifixion. And he says, this, was, this man was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but you nailed him to a cross or was nailed to the cross by the hands of God's men and put to death. So God preordained it, but you carried it out. Right? I just had a question or observation maybe. It seems strange that the uh, the guard that was there with swords and clubs didn't re react to Peter's attack on, on uh, one of their own. So they just stand there and watch him do it and not respond. Well, if you, if you remember, this is a question about the response of the ones that had the ear cut off and, and, and that. But if you remember in, in John's passage, when they first come in, uh, in chapter, seven, eight, chapter 18, um, when they came in and uh, Peter, uh, Judas, uh, Judas betrays him and then uh, he says whom do you see, seek and they answered him Jesus the Nazarene and he said to them I am he and Judas also who was betraying was standing with him and when therefore he said to them I am he they drew back and fell to the ground so here they've already had a display of his power of being confronting the, the very son of God and then him speaking and then this falling back in in the power of his words, they collapsed. And so that, they've already got this, this, this thing going here with that. So anyway, this, this, this idea that it was purposed of God before the foundation of the world, and then Peter even reiterates that in his, God, in his epistle when he talks about this Lamb of God was foreordained or foreknown 
which is the same understanding that word foreordained and foreknown is the same word. It means that God has purposed it from the beginning. He said uh, in verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 19, or verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So here... Uh, Jesus is responding to this drama of this night with his arrest, his betrayal, as understanding and knowing and being participant of the will of God. This is foreknown, this was foreordained, this is the will of God that I go through this time. This is what I'm here for. In fact, in John, let's see, where was that? Um, In John uh, 12, 27, my, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So the whole point of is that this is the purpose that God came was to accomplish this mission in that, uh, that he came to die. Okay? Now, again, speaking of uh, Judas um, I'm trying to think of a passage um, anyway okay in, in, in Matthew 26 verse 24 it says the son of man is to go just as has been written of him but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So this is speaking of Judas, and he makes a comment that Judas is used of God to, to fulfill what was promised of God that he would suffer and that he would be betrayed, but woe to the man that is going to be guilty of that. And it speaks to what? What does that speak to? Woe to the man. It had been better if he had not been born. Well, it speaks to the final judgment at the Great White Throne Judgment. Every, every unbeliever that goes to the Great White Throne Judgment would have been better if they had not been born from the standpoint of eternity. I mean, if, the, if you're going to be eternally in the lake of fire, it would have been better for you not to have been born. But it specifically speaks to this fact of those that are going to suffer greater punishment because the books are going to be opened at the Great White Throne Judgment and everyone's going to be judged according to what they did and there seems to be a greater punishment on Judas because of this reality that he was chosen of Jesus Christ to be a disciple, and yet he was the one that betrayed Jesus and sold his soul um, to the devil to betray Jesus Christ, and it will be brought back at, his, uh, at the Great White Throne Judgment. It will be, the books will be opened on his life, and it will be judged accordingly. Okay, so now let's look at the... The time of the, the, the other, the, just one mention about the other disciples before we go back to the courtyard of the high priest. In verse 56, or, or verse, uh, verse 54, I mean verse 55, at the time, this is Matthew 26, verse 55, at that time Jesus said to the multitudes, have you, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? As against a robber, each day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So the, the disciples, in responding to his arrest, they fled and they scattered, which was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 13. When he is in Zechariah's passage in chapter 13 he's actually talking about the coming time of tribulation and the time when Jews the Jews will be saved but in this passage in chapter 7 I mean chapter 13 verse 7 he says awake O sword against my shepherd and against the man my associate referring to Jesus Christ declares the Lord of hosts strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my head against the little ones. So here is a quotation talking about the fact that the, the disciples are going to be scattered, and it is quoted there uh, in that passage that that's going to happen there. 
uh, that the disciples are going to flee because, they, again, they are unprepared for this moment because they don't understand all that's happening. And so they flee and are nowhere. They're not going to be um, standing up for Jesus. They're going to be in the background. Okay? Question. Is it fair to say that um, because of the purposes of the per person, like Jesus' purpose was always to fulfill the will of the Father, but, you know, Judas says that his own purposes and the disciples want to see this new kingdom come in. So depending on what they're in their mind, their purpose for living or uh, is, it makes a difference in what role they... Right. Taking. Right. So what, what happens is, in time, God uses all the people that he, that he is using at that moment in time to carry out his purpose, no matter what state or condition they're in. So if they're lost and they're, they're trying to undo what God is trying to do, in their mind, they're doing what would be helpful to undo what God's doing. So they're trying to do what would be against God, but yet they're doing what is God's purpose. So God always providentially uses people that are making choices in time thinking they're making choices for one reason but yet it is always allowing the perfect perfect will of God to take place the same thing happened in Joseph's life we talked about that before Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery thinking that was the best thing for them to do instead of killing him he would sell him into slavery and he'd be gone and they would be rid of him but God used their actions their thoughts their mentality in that moment to get Joseph to Egypt to save the Israelites or to save the children of Israel from starvation because God had a purpose in mind. But it's still true today. In other words, it's still true today. Purpose then to do something that's not the will of God because we see our own purposes can get mixed up with what the will of God is. In other words, you say, well, it seems like it would be a good purpose to do this, but that may not be the will of God because we don't have. Well, right. Right. We don't know the will of God perfectly as we should. So we, we as Christians, we desire to be right with God, and we use the principles of Scripture to make choices and decisions, and trust that the sovereign hand of God will, will intervene in the circumstantial results of our lives to get us where God purposes to go. And that's what we understand. We know. In, in, in a different way, in, in the world that we're living in, which is a world that is vastly pursuing a one-world state, a state for the Antichrist to come into, a state prepared for judgment, so the world is being prepared for judgment, the world is trying to destroy Christianity and the things of God and to set up a world without God. In reality, they're setting up a world for God to judge. And so they're pursuing a world without God and that world without God is, is God's purpose to judge that world. And so they're, they're accomplishing God's purpose by pursuing a world without God because God's going to use that to judge them at that time. So, again, that's the way all of that works. Okay, so now they've arrested Jesus, and they have taken him, and they bound him and taken him, and they arrested him. They're, they're on the east side of the Kidron Valley. They're going to go from there all the way back down to where, close to where the upper room was, because that's where Caiaphas' house is. And so they're going to the high priest location. So they're going to take Jesus and they're going to pursue all the way back down from the Kidron Valley, from the Garden of Gethsemane, all the way back across the Kidron Valley, all the way back down to the southwestern part of the city of Jerusalem to where the location of Caiaphas' house is, is where they're headed. So here you have this procession. The, the disciples went from the upper room to there, and now they're going to retrace their steps back down close to where they were in the upper room. Okay? Now, turn to John as we get down to this place. Now, as we follow Peter's actions, we'll, we'll look at his too as we continue to keep an eye on Peter. So it says in verse 12 of chapter 18 of John, So the Roman cohort... And the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he, is, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple, and we think that it was John, because John never 
named himself in his writings. So this is probably John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So here you have this, it's, it, I don't know exactly how this is set up, but there's a courtroom, I mean, there, there's a courtyard, they've entered into the courtyard, and then there's an inner part of that that the, that the high priest is going to be in, where they're going to be questioning Jesus. So they come to this place, and they first come to Annas. Now, who is Annas? No. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, but he was the high priest. And so he was a long-standing high priest. And from what I understand, he was removed from his position as high priest by the predecessor of Pilate. So there was something going on, which sounds like it was something that he was opposing Rome, and therefore Roman replaced him. And I didn't know how the high priest is chosen, how the high priest comes into being as far as power. But, but Annas was the high priest. In fact, he is still the influencer behind the other high priest and the other priest. He is the, he's kind of the high priest behind the, the high priest. He is the unofficial high priest. And so he has power over, first his sons took the role of the official high priest, and now his son-in-law Caiaphas is the current high priest. So Annas is, is kind of the power behind these others. So that's why they took him to Annas first. So they took Jesus to Annas first. He is the unofficial high priest, the one that has the real power over the others. But he is the one that they took Jesus to first. And so here they take him to, to, the, to Annas. And then this is um, what goes on with Jesus in front of Annas, the former high priest that is the real power behind the current high priest. In verse 19 of John chapter 18, it says, The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by, by gave Jesus a blow saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? And Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So this was the first interaction informally in front of Annas. And as Jesus is, is refraining, or he is re, replying to Annas's questions, then one of the guards thought he was being disrespectful to the high priest or dis didn't like what he had to say, so he hit him. And then Jesus said, why did you strike me? I spoke the truth. You had no reason to do that. I wasn't being disrespectful. I was replying in a right way. And now Anna sends him to Caiaphas, which is the one that we are going to focus in on in this, this bogus trial or this, this, um, this trial that is a false uh, there's going to be a not a just trial. So anyway, so it says in verse 14 of chapter 18 of John that Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die. Okay, so that was found um, in John chapter, I think it's 11. Yeah, in John chapter 11, verse 48, Caiaphas is speaking because Jesus had performed many signs there in the temple, and um, they knew that this was not going well. In verse 48, he says, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. That's an amazing thing to say. Here you have a high priest that is not a believer that is being used of God to make a prophecy about the reality that Jesus is going to die for those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world of Israelites to be saved. But he is speaking it to them in the sense that 
you guys don't understand. Our position under Rome is threatened if we allow this man to keep stirring up the people. So we have got to put an end to this. We've got to stop this one man, and it's expedient that this one man die so that we don't lose our nation. So that's what their point is. From the very beginning, they understood that their position of authority was in jeopardy if they continue to allow this to go forward. Okay? Now, go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and you have this, this trial in front of Caiaphas that's going on in the wee early morning hours of Thursday night, Friday morning, before, they are, before he goes to Pilate. Okay, in chapter Matthew, chapter 26, verse, 40, verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter also was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. So here you have this bogus trial, this uh, injustice going on in this setting of the high priest, Caiaphas, and they're trying to find a reason for the Romans to have him put to death. And so what they're trying to accuse him of is insurrection and rebellion against Rome. Okay? That's what they want to, that's what they want to accuse him of because they know that the Romans would be on board of putting him to death if that's their accusation. So they're trying to get people to have a false testimony, a false witness, that they will uh, have him put to death. Okay, now, if, uh, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 23, and we'll look at this next week when we get into the, the, the situation with Pilate, but I just want to show this to you to give you understanding of what they were trying to accuse Jesus of. In chapter 23 of Luke, verse 1, it says, Then the whole body of, the, of them arose and brought him to, before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So here they're trying to say that Jesus is trying to stir up a resurrection, a, a, a res, a res, not a resurrection, a, insur, in, res, insurrection against Rome. And so they're trying to get it to appeal to Roman authorities that Jesus is trying to overthrow Rome and install himself as king. That's what they want to bring to, to Pilate. Because they know that if, if, they, can, if they can accuse him of being uh, an insurrectionist and they are in favor of having him put to death, then the Romans are more likely to go along with them if it is because of insurrection and rebellion against Rome. So that's their, their whole point. So they're, they're doing a, a, a trial that is a mockery because they're trying to bring in false witnesses to testify that he is trying to overthrow Rome. He's just trying to establish himself as their own king in, in, in contrast to being under Roman authority. He's trying to overthrow Rome and install a Jewish king, which that's going to happen, right? When he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords, he's going to overthrow the Antichrist, which is going to be the final the final king of Rome, and he's going to set up the kingdom in Israel, which is what is going to happen. But it is not at this time he's going to do that, but that's what they're trying to accuse him of. And the irony is they're trying to accuse him of what they're wanting. What do the Jews want? They want a king that will deliver them from Rome. And yet they're accusing him of being that king in a way that will cause him to be put to death by Rome because they don't want him to be their king. They don't like him. They don't agree with him. Okay, so that's what, they're, that's what they're trying to do is trying to establish the fact that he is a threat to Rome and therefore Rome needs to have him put to death. Okay, but that doesn't happen. It can't happen because it's a false witness and there's no way that they can accuse him of that. And so when they ask him about that, he doesn't speak. 
It refers back to Isaiah 53 when it says, He was silent before them as a lamb before his shears. He was silent because he didn't speak. He didn't, he didn't give them any credibility to even answer the questions about anything dealing with what they're accusing of falsely. So here, they can't accuse him of anything of that nature. So then Caiaphas says to him, I adjure you, in verse 63 of Matthew 26, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Caiaphas says, You tell us plainly. Are you the Christ? And Jesus said, You said it. Now he hasn't denied this all along. He's always said he is the Son of God. But in this trial setting, they can't get him on the grounds of a false testimony, a false witness that he is trying to overthrow Rome. So they say, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds with great glory. So here you say, he's saying, you're going to see me revealed in all my glory as a Son of God. I am who you claim or who you're asking if I am. And so the high priest then tore his robes, verse 65, saying he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? In other words, we don't need any false witnesses. We don't need anyone to declare. He has himself said he is the Son of God, and in our law, he is worthy of being put to death because he has blasphemed the name of God. He has claimed to be God, therefore he's worthy of blasphemy, even though everything Jesus did gave credit or grave credibility, the fact that he is the Son of God. Andrew. What exactly were they looking for then? Weren't they looking for somebody who was going to, I mean, wouldn't anybody be saying, being blasphemous, if it wasn't Jesus, if they were looking for a king? I mean, what exactly did they want? Okay. So you got to understand, back in Matthew chapter 12, back to Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus did the things that was promised that the Messiah would do, and the people looked at Jesus, and they looked at the Pharisees, and they said, is this not the son of David? He is doing what the son of David is supposed to do. Is this not him? And what did the Pharisees say? No, he does what he does by the power of Satan. So they have already rejected him as their Messiah. So now they, they've rejected him as their king and their Messiah, and so they must reject him as the Son of God because if he's the Son of God, then they messed up because they would have accepted him as their Messiah. So they already rejected him as the Messiah, as the Son of David. Now they have to reject him as the Son of God. Well, what did they want the Messiah to look like? They're saying, uh, you know, if they... It's kind of like people that are lost and dead in their trespass sins... They cannot hear the saving words of God until the Spirit of God opens up their heart. And so they have to look at it from a human perspective, and they're looking for a Saul. They're looking for a giant of a man. They're looking for a conqueror. They're not looking for this humble servant that rode in on a donkey. They're not looking at someone that is righteous. They're looking at someone that's powerful. I think I could say that they were looking for someone like Joel Osteen. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure Joel Osteen is their picture of a king that's going to conquer, but still, the, exactly, they didn't want their sins to be exposed. Okay, so, so now he is accused of blasphemy, and so then they say, what further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And this is their response to their actions of evil people. Now, when Peter speaks at Pentecost and gives this determination to the Jews that they, create, they, they committed the unpardonable sin of rejecting Jesus as their Messiah and therefore thrust Israel into a time of dispersion, um, becoming desolate until the revival in the end times when Christ is going to bring them back. But now, whereas they were guilty first of rejecting the Messiah, now they're guilty of murder. They're guilty of murder. They killed the very Son of God. In fact, that's why in, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching 
to at Pentecost and the Jews that are being born again, the Jews that are coming to know Christ, it says here in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you murdered, whom you crucified. So now you're not only guilty of rejection of the Messiah, you're guilty of killing the very Son of God. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what can we do? What shall we do now? What can we do now? They understood the gravity. I mean, this is the Son of God. He proved himself to be the Son of God by being resurrected from the dead. He, this is the Son of God. What can we do? We're guilty. We understand. We're guilty. So they understood it. The, 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 the crime of rejection has now turned to the crime of murder and destroying the Son of God. Okay? Now, let's look at what's going on with Judas. Judas has gone with them to this trial. And now Judas understands the ramifications of what he's done. So look in chapter 27 of Matthew and see Judas' response uh, and, and what happens to Judas. Verse 1 of chapter 27 of Matthew. And when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So here's it, the, the, wee, the beginning of dawn in the morning of Friday morning. They've had this trial during the night. They've had this time of, of accusations, and now they've, they've come to the point of they have sentenced him, condemned him to death. They, they, they were supposed to have trials at night, were they? I mean, it was against the rules. Well, well, they did it at night so that the people wouldn't have, they wouldn't have to deal with the multitudes of people that would be there. So... And they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. Then when, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to, to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the piece of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And here you have a quote from Scripture. It's actually a quote from Zechariah of the exact thing, the exact amount of money, the exact purpose for the money, quoted in the Old Testament, prophesied, and then carried out exactly like it's been. The, scripture is amazing. Scripture is an amazing thing. We don't even know all of the imports of Scripture, and we won't know, probably through all eternity, but we certainly won't know until we get to, to, to glory about all of the details of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament that we don't have a clue of. Just like the, the passage in the Old Testament where it says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Talking about the passage calling Israel out of Egypt. And then you get to the New Testament when Herod is going to kill all of the babies and, and Joseph and Mary take Jesus down into Egypt to keep, them from being, keep him from being killed. And then he quotes that passage from the Old Testament, out of Egypt I have called my son. When they spoke, the angel spoke to them and said, come on back. To Israel, the one who tried to kill you is dead. And so this passage referring, bringing Jesus back out of Egypt as my son, if you just read the Old Testament without knowing this in the New Testament, you would have understood it to mean that it was talking about Israel being brought out of Egypt, out of captivity. But there's more to Scripture than we ever know until it's pointed out to us in other Scripture. And that's what happens here. So this is what happened. Now, Judas... What was his mindset? Did he repent? I really believe that Judas did not understand the gravity of what he was doing. Judas, I believe, wanted a king to overthrow Rome. I think Judas was part of the zealot movement that wanted to see Rome out of their lives and wanted to see the king that would come and destroy them. I believe that Judas had originally thought that this Jesus was going to be someone that could do that. And so he attached himself and was called by Jesus to be that one to betray him. But he thought he was doing a work to bring in the relief from Rome or the overthrow of Rome. 
And so when he goes and betrays Jesus, I think he either thought that this would expose Jesus as a fraud and therefore they wouldn't be following him anymore, or it would cause Jesus to rise up and fight and destroy Rome. Because he had seen the miracles. He'd seen, he knew he had the power. And, but when he knew that they had condemned him to death, I don't think he, really, I don't think he meant for it to go that far. And I think that's why he had remorse. Because he knew that Jesus did not do what they said he did. He knew that Jesus was not guilty of anything. And so his remorse was that he had betrayed an innocent man to death. I don't think he thought it was going to be to death, even though he should have, because he should have known what the, what the animosity of the, of the Pharisees was toward Jesus. But either way, he has come to the point of he is remorseful because he has done something that was wrong. Doesn't mean he repented of his sins. He is the slanderer. He is the accuser. He is the Satan that Jesus called him. He is not born again. And he died as an unbeliever that had done what he did and will answer for his sins. Okay? So here you have, you've got these four characters that we're looking at in this drama that's being played out. And now Judas has come to an end of, because his part in that drama has ended because he uh, became remorseful. Now let, let's look at Peter. Uh, and I'm going to turn to the Luke's passage uh, to look at Peter's denial. Now, you know Peter's been out in, the, in, he's been out in the courtyard. He's been observing what's going on. It seems like John was brought into the inner parts because John knew the high priest. But Peter has been out in the courtyard. In verse 54 of Luke chapter 22... This is when Jesus was arrested. It said that having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was falling at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looked intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, another saw him and said, You are not one of them too. You are one of them too. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. And Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a cock crowed. Now Jesus had told Peter that before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Now Peter has denied Jesus Christ three times in the courtyard at the place of the, of the mock trial that's going on, Jesus, Jesus is being put on trial and accused and being condemned to death, and Peter is out there denying Jesus. Now, Peter is a believer. He's born again. But he, is, he has no power because he didn't pray. He has no power because he is weak in the flesh, and he is denying Jesus Christ. Now, here's the amazing thing. This is the only one of the Gospels that points this out. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Ah, I can't imagine. I mean, it was close enough that in the vicinity of what was going on and hearing the cock crowed, that Jesus is close enough to turn and look at Peter. And you can just know what's being said and what's being thought, what's going on in the mind. Jesus looked at Peter, and Peter knows. Jesus saying, I told you, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's response, he remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said him before cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The response of a born-again person is to repent of sin. When you're confronted by the Holy Spirit, you repent of your sin. The Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet. But here they are still in, the, in the, the presence of Jesus. And Jesus told them, after I leave, I'm going to send you another to take my place. But until I leave, you're going to be confronted by me. And so Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter is devastated. He was going to do so much. He was going to die for Christ. 
and he couldn't even stand up for Christ. And now he goes out and he whips, he weeps bitterly. And the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him again. So the reaction of Peter is in tearful remorse, wept bitterly because he had denied Christ. He had let down his master, his Lord. And the response of that person is to turn and to desire to be brought back into repentance. Now, it's in mourning, and it's now time for them to take Judas, I mean, take Jesus to Pilate. Um, and this is going to happen, and we're going to pick that up next week. But it's a, it, one thing that is uh, surprising. Let's see if it's in the, I think it's in the Luke account. Yeah, in the Luke account, we're going to look at it next week. That in verse chapter 23 of Luke, the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he is himself is Christ the king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. And the Pilate said to the chief priests in the multitude, I find no guilt in this man. And they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting with Galilee, even as far as this place. But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he, was, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Herod was the king over the region of Galilee. And so therefore he would have jurisdiction over Jesus because he was from Galilee even though Pilate had jurisdiction because this was going on in Jerusalem. But Pilate is looking for a way out. And it just so happened that Herod was in Jerusalem. How convenient that the things that God has purpose and plan happen according to God's purpose and plan at his time. So now we're going to see Jesus appear before Herod, and then he gets sent back to Pilate for his sentence unto death. And we'll pick that up next week.